of resiliency uh, for, as disciples uh, in this, this last season. Um, that being a follower of Jesus means that we're persevering in our faith. It means that we don't, we don't settle for just living a, a base Christianity, but we keep pushing in. And like we, we experienced just a minute ago, we were called to walk in deeper waters. And God calls us to walk in places that we can't walk alone. And so we need to be focused on God being above everything else. And that brings us to and leads us to be resilient followers of Jesus and not just being cultural Christians. And for this month, we're going to be looking at how resiliency requires each of us to have meaningful relationships in our lives. So it's very uh, profound that, that uh, Joan had her word today for us about being united because it's not just about having meaningful relationships it's about having healthy meaningful relationships because we can all say we have meaningful relationships and significant people in our lives but when those relationships aren't healthy then it's not going to help us move forward and it doesn't mean you have to have a ton of people around you some of you may be like, I like one to two close people in my life, max. I don't need any more than that. And that's great. And some of you love the world to be your friend and want everybody to be a close friend of yours. And that's great too. Uh, it, it doesn't, it, it's not a, a respecter of persons that way, but we want us to grow. We want us to have people in our lives who truly know us, but who can also speak truth into our lives that we'll accept. So that's what we're going here. This month's series will be drawing on work done by Pete and Jerry Scazzaro. They're pastors in New York. And uh, if you want to follow along with what we're doing with any of their material, you can look it up. They use, they've written a book called um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete and Jerry Scazzaro. And feel free to, to follow along with that. But that's what we're going to be using as for the next month as kind of a base, some of the work that they've been doing uh, to help us walk through how to grow in our meaningful relationships. Because resilient disciples of Christ, they cultivate those meaningful relationships with other followers of Jesus that they desire to be around. Why? To become Jesus-centered versions of themselves. We don't walk with other Christians that we like to be around, become like them, but to become how Jesus has called us to be. And so we want to grow in that. And I want to encourage you, just like Joan's word for us, this season, this series may be tough, but if you're willing to allow the Holy Spirit to lead you, there's going to be a beautiful opportunity for growth for us. One that a majority of Christians sometimes don't want to do. Put in that hard work to say, God, I'll, I'll go where you ask me to go and I'll do what you want me to do. And so I'm going to ask you to join us on that journey so we can see that renewal, that revival, that transformation that we all long to see in our lives, but also in our city. And we could spend a year talking about how important relationships are for us in following Jesus. But nothing would affect real change 
no matter how much you know, if we do, don't address that below the surface issue. Because for too long, we have defined spiritual, matu- spiritual maturity, disconnecting it from emotional maturity. We separate the two and we say, we can be spiritually mature and yet you can be emotionally immature. But in reality, how can you be truly spiritually mature when you're emotionally immature? When emotionally you react to people and, and say things and do things and, and talk about them behind their backs or you act in certain ways or don't allow God to do things in your life because you are stubborn. How can you grow in spiritual maturity if you don't also grow in emotional maturity? But if you are growing both maturing or maturing both spiritually and emotionally, it's going to lead us to transformation. But if you're not, what you're probably going to do is grow more religious, not more righteous. For instance, we can look at it this way and go like, we meet Jesus. We attend church. We discover our gifts or our talents that God wants to do, uh, use. We learn stuff, and then we go try and impact the world. And we look at that and go like, well, that kind of makes sense. But there's another way I think that God wants us to do it. He wants to meet, a, meet him, to be engaged in the loving community, the church, to discover how he has gifted us, to learn things, but also to become like him so that we can impact the world. And in reality, the become like Jesus could be an asterisk in every area. We meet Jesus to become more like Jesus. We engage in community to become more like Jesus. We discover our gifts to become more like Jesus. We learn the Bible to become more like Jesus to impact the world. But becoming like Jesus means that we have our meaningful relationships healthy and impacted. Because Jesus and Pharisees, they both impacted the world. They both had a role that impacted the world. But we want to be more like Jesus. Pastor and author John Tyson, he puts it this way. He says, our aim as sheep should not be to do amazing things for Jesus, but to have an inner life like Jesus, to develop relationships like Jesus, our great shepherd. And this in no way contradicts what we talked about last week, works for God. Because our faith without works is still dead. But what it means is as sheep, it is our relationship to the good shepherd enabled by his word and by his spirit that results in amazing things. Because you are so connected to God, because you are growing to look more and more like Jesus, amazing things happen. We don't do amazing things in order to look like Jesus. We become like Jesus and the amazing things follow. There's a significant difference when we do that. Because one leads us to always want to do amazing things, more amazing things, and more amazing things. And the other makes us want to be more like Jesus and more like Jesus and more like Jesus. What a huge contrast those two two things are. 
and you think of sheep, have you ever seen a sheep do anything independently amazing? Have you? I have not. I think the latest video of a sheep I saw was a shepherd or like the farmer getting a sheep out of a ditch, right? That got stuck in a ditch. He got the sheep out of the ditch and the sheep ran away and then ran right back into the ditch. Left to our own devices, that pretty much sums up our lives, doesn't it? <laughs> Thanks, God, I'm good. I'm on my way. Oh, darn. <laughs> We're right back where we started. Becoming like Jesus means we allow the Holy Spirit to heal us from emotional damage in our lives. It means we allow the Holy Spirit to mature our emotions means we allow the Holy Spirit to continuously develop our character. So where do we see that in a real-life example? How can I show that to you? Well, maybe we'll do this one because it's one that we love to, to, to flog on now. The pandemic. I know, right? It showed us two things, all right? This is what it showed us. The first thing it showed us is it actually didn't divide us more. You know what it did? It revealed the division that was already in your heart. It revealed the side of the camp you were already on. It's just what you said in private, you now said in public, or at least on Facebook. It simply, re it simply revealed how deformed we really are. And the second thing is, it tempted us to be formed by our crowd and not by Christ. It tempted us to look at the people around us that believed the same things as us and said, this is how I identify. These are my people. This is what's going to form my behavior and my actions. This is what it looks like for me to be me. Instead of going, where's Christ in this? How do I find Jesus in the middle of this? not on one camp or the other, one idea or the other. How do I find Jesus in this and live out what he has for me? Because no matter which crowd you are in or how right your side may have been, you're so tempted, we are so tempted to be defined by those issues, defined by those people. And in reality, this is an example of emotional immaturity because we're looking to be defined by others rather than either by ourselves or by God. Let me just fix this. And if we personalize it and take it away from like a pandemic to our everyday lives, if we reflect for a moment, we'll probably realize that we have a cavernous vault full of moments where we've done the same thing or where others, uh, or other ways where we've allowed our emotional immaturity to undermine where the Holy Spirit and the Word were trying to mature us. And so to help us grow, we're going to look at the Word so that the Holy Spirit can use what happened to someone who kept his spiritual and emotional maturity disconnected rather than integrated. And I pray that it will lead us uh, to maturity in both. Saul, he was the first king of Israel. Before David, the most popular king, 
He was the first king of Israel. Israel up to this day, it had always been, been led by prophets and, and priests and judges. They had ruled over Israel because God was their king. They needed no other ruler except for God, and then God used uh, specific people to execute his, his will with his people. But Israel decided they really wanted to look like all the countries around them. We need a king like they do. How are we supposed to go to all the king parties and have all these fights with all the other kings when we have no king? Where's our king standing in front to lead us in battle? Give us a king. So God relents and says, fine, you'll have a king. But you don't get off what I ask of you, what I've asked from you as far as your tithes to the church or to the, uh, to the temple. You're not going to get rid of that, but you're also going to have the tithes and the burdens that your earthly king is going to place on you as well. But he relents, and he gives them Saul to be their first king. Saul is handsome and he's tall. The Bible talks about him being a head taller than everybody else. Everybody else's heads came up to his shoulders. So he was, a, he was an imposing figure, handsome. And yet he was somewhat insecure and not sure of himself. But God selected him to be their first king. And after supernatural selection of the prophet Samuel pointing out all these things that would indicate that he was exactly God's chosen man, even after all of that, God begins to use him to do things and then the, the wheels fall off the track for him. God instructs Saul to attack the Amalekites and to completely destroy all that belongs to them, everything because of their evil. They were involved in child sacrifice and all sorts of things. And God had said, I've, my wrath has to be poured out. My justice needs to be exacted on the Amalekites. The time is right for that, and I need you to go and to, and to exact my, my judgment on them. And due to the pressure to pl- please the people he leads, there you can read emotional immaturity. He does only part of what God requires. Saul is overly focused on success to gain favor with people. His crowd is forming his behavior, not his obedience, trusting God fully. And so let's read this. All of the story can be found if you wanted to, to look it up and read it in your time. Uh, 1 Samuel chapters 9 to 15, you'll see the whole story of this part of Saul's life play out. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Saul was clear on what God had asked him to do and to lead. God was not not, uh, vague in what he said. Destroy everything. And it's not really that Saul was afraid to lead. I mean, he was king and he decided to take them into battle. It's not that he was feeling that type of pressure. What became hard 
was not satisfying uh, the desire to be seen as the good guy, the hero, the benevolent one. That's what became hard. He wanted to be seen as the guy who knew what he was doing. And so he took God's commands and he altered it so he could see, like, destroy everything. I'm gonna, we'll keep all the good stuff so that we can split it up, use it as we will. He immaturely sees what was good for himself and for his men and then from selfishness takes it upon himself or takes it for himself. He disobeys God and surrounds himself with people who would only feed his ego and tell him he was right. And by the time Samuel the prophet shows up, Saul believes his own lie. He believes it's truth. He's convinced he did the right thing. As we continue reading, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. And early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone on to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. And so when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, The soldiers brought them up from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Hear that. In the verse 12, if you will read along in your Bible, Saul sets up a monument in his own honor. No longer was he doing God's bidding. No longer was he doing this on behalf of God because God wanted his judgment to be brought out. He was doing this for his own honor. In verse 15, you see Paul or Saul believes that partial obedience is the same as full obedience. That the ends justify the means. And then we reply to Samuel's challenge. We see the true condition of his heart. He thinks he's the hero, or at least in the right. And when confronted, what does he do? He blames others. Well, the soldiers, they, they brought it. They brought all the good stuff. So we get, we're going we're gonna to sacrifice it. That's what it was for. And he thinks that his disobedient acts can be used for good. But we can be sure that we can never do the wrong thing for the right reasons and expect God to be pleased. God is equally invested in the journey as he is in our destination. Why? Because from his perspective, we are currently joint heirs with Jesus. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. How we live right now matters, not just in a far-off future that's disconnected from this one. So enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replies. He does not see what's coming. 
Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Here how he replies, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on mission, on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Saul, reinforced by his crowd, calls his disobedience obedience. He calls it obedience that he didn't destroy everything. And Saul also, for a second time, doesn't refer to God as his God, but as Samuel's God, revealing in his heart who he was truly following. Unhealthy spirituality starts when we surround ourselves with people who tell us what we wish to hear, but in a spirit of love, do not remind us of what God commands us. And even when God sends Samuel in love to remind him of God's truth, he doesn't listen. Some things can be redeemed. In others, they need to be given away or destroyed. See, the enemy wants, he wants us to keep a little bit to ourselves. He wants to keep us to keep the parts that don't seem all that bad, the best of everything that needs to be given away or destroyed in our lives. He wants us to be able to say, well, this isn't that bad. This isn't like I'm, I'm, I'm like cheating on my wife or I'm doing all these other things. I'm, this is just like a little, a little tax evasion. That's all it is. It's nothing big. It's just a side gig that I'm not reporting my taxes on. Not a big deal. He wants us to be okay with those little things, those little things, but those little things never stay little. They end up controlling our lives. He wants us to keep a little greed, keep a little lust, keep a little fear, keep a little jealousy, enough where we think we can control it for a while, but it will take us over. So instead of destroying it all, what do we do? We resist maturing by keeping a little bit. We consider it harmless, the white lies that don't hurt anyone. But spiritual and emotional health is being honest to follow God fully. Saul is do so deformed that he tries to reframe his disobedience as devotion to God. And it would be his disqualification, removing his lineage from the, from the throne. He was supposed to be the line that the Messiah would come from, but he was disqualified and thus made way for David. And you may think that's harsh. You go like, man, this guy messes up once as king. This was actually the second time that he had completely done this, that he had, he had ignored God's commands and had gone his own way. And you can read the, the first account in, in chapter 9. 
His actions revealed the conditions of his heart. And we can do the same when we allow our emotional immaturity to be a part of our identity, a part of how we live. And we can even think that we can use it for God. Yet it will have consequences. Maybe not like quite, quite like Saul's, but real consequences. Maybe we think we have a, a brashness and we have a, a way of just grating on people and we say, I'm just a truth teller. I just say it like I see it. But in reality, we destroy relationships and we hurt people because we just say things not taking into consideration what it's going to do. That's using an immaturity and thinking that you're going to use it for God's good. God wants to grow us into maturity, to speak truth in love. When we are formed by the crowd, they may want you to remain with them, to be unhealed. Because when your, your health threatens their comfort, misery loves company, doesn't it? And that's why it's hard sometimes. We start associating with a certain group of people and a certain ideology. And when we want to try to get healthy in that group, it becomes hard because leaving, leaving means you have, to, you have to step outside of it because you can't stay inside that group and be healthy because it's toxic. And it's hard. It's hard to sever some relationships that we feel are meaningful, but yet they're not healthy. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. That's a powerful statement. Rebellion, rebelling against God's commands is like the sin of divination. And our arrogance and pride of thinking we're okay when we do that is like the evil of idolatry. Lord, have mercy on us. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's commands and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Samuel corrects Saul, and it gives us a transformative truth about God. Our greatest sacrifice without obedience gains nothing. Our greatest sacrifice without obedience gains us nothing. Our greatest activity to make a difference in the world without obedience gains us nothing. In Saul's life, his fear of men, not his awe of God, drove his behavior. So when we fear the rejection of others more than, the, than, the, um, more than we embrace the obedience to Jesus, we are allowing our emotional immaturity to derail us. 
when we allow past broken relationships to be the templates or the shapers of our current and future relationships, we are allowing our emotional immaturity to derail us. When we don't do the hard work to root out these things and have trusted godly people around us to speak truth and discipline in our lives, we derail ourselves. And all of those relate to our relationships with others. And they may feel like they're meaningful, those relationships, but they need to be more than just meaningful relationships. They need to be healthy, meaningful relationships. And I know all this talk of meaningful relationships, and I've only focused on our personal maturity. Why? Because that's the only person you have the responsibility to bring into submission in Christ in all ways. Yes, we're going to walk with other people, but you are responsible for you to be in submission to Christ. Meaningful relationships start with us being healthy so that we can be in relationships with others. So as we close, I have some personal reflections that I'd love for you to, to think through. And how do we respond to what Joan has, has given us t- to think about, what our worship set was all about, what, God, what I'm sure God spoke to many of the women at Heart Conference, and for all of us here. In following Jesus, where am I just going through the motions? Where am I just offering sacrifices that equal religious activity? Saul pretends to be someone on the outside that he's not on the inside. Where's that true for you? That what people see on the outside isn't isn't really what's going on on the inside. Who do you have in your life that acts as a Samuel? Who do you allow to speak truth, God's truth, so you don't live in a false self. Do you listen to your Samuel? Do you listen to the Holy Spirit correcting you with God's word? Final thing is this, take a step. Like Joan asked us, repent. Reconcile. Remove unhealthy circumstances, relationships, influences, 